Welcome to Saga Thing, where we're putting the sagas of the Icelanders on trial. I'm John. And I'm Andy. And we are back at our self-imposed task of working our way through the sagas of Icelanders. Sisyphus got nothing on us. No, he doesn't. Uh, but yes, it's uh, it's summertime here at Saga Thing, and that means, what, as always, we're... Wait, what does that mean? Well, what, what does what mean? Summertime thing. We're kind of an indoor sort of podcast. True, but, uh, you know, like I was trying to say, the summertime means that we have slightly fewer demands on our time than the rest of the year. So oh. I think it's time to dive back into the sagas and really push some, yeah. make some progress, you know? I guess. You know I teach multiple courses in the summer, right? I mean, I do. That's why I was making fun of you, and that's why we, we took three <laughs> weeks instead of two weeks. Uh, uh-huh. But yeah, yeah. But are you teaching any any saga courses? Yeah, not this summer, no. Ah, oh well. That's unfortunate. Nevertheless, uh, John, we are not going to tolerate any more shilly-shallying around here. Oh, Summertime God. is saga time. And this <laughs> this is the 29th saga of the Icelanders that we're covering for this podcast. Fostbrother saga. The saga mm-hmm. of the sworn brothers. Fostbrother saga. Yes, this is this is one of the ones I've been looking forward to for a variety of reasons. Have you? Yeah, sort of. I mean, I mean we okay. had to get to it eventually, right? So that's one. <laughs> it's on the list. I have a list somewhere and it's on it. Yes, but why are you looking forward to this specifically? Well, I, I mean, I think because uh, we talked about this a while back off mic, but this is this is one of the few sagas that neither of us had ever gotten around to reading all the way through before. Hmm. This one's a rare treat. Oh, well, yeah. Uh, there are individual passages that come up in general studies of the sagas, but mm-hmm. not all the way through. I, I think this might be the last one of the sagas that we're both coming to relatively fresh, actually. Hmm. Uh, which is relatively strange. I mean, this isn't an obscure text. No, not at all. It's talked about all over the place. So the elevator pitch for this saga is that the sworn brothers are two men, Thorger Haverson and Thormod Bersason. Uh, they are close friends, despite having very different personalities. And their bond survives until one of them is killed, and the other swears to avenge the killing, at which point the saga turns into a revenge quest of the sort we haven't seen since the last chapters of Njal's saga. And that is the bare bones of it. Uh, you've left out the minor detail that one of them is a murdering psychopath and the other is a habitual liar. That's <laughs> well, kind of stop. Important. They're blushing. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, these are these are unusual choices for protagonists, even for the yeah. sagas. Uh, and scholars actually have opinions about this one. Uh, Andy, you know, we love dipping into uh, Jonas Christensen's Edison sagas whenever we start a new saga. Of course. Uh, and I think I know where you're going with this. Christensen wrote a dissertation. And a book on the textual history of this saga in particular. Mm-hmm. Have you read much of it? Uh, I've read the English language summary, but I haven't had time to go into the text itself. Yeah, same. Uh, it's on a list of things to get done before we finish talking about the saga, so maybe? Well, for starters, Christensen says that both of our protagonists are, quote, brilliantly portrayed figures, with Thormod the quintessential conflicted warrior poet, and Thorgir a cold-blooded connoisseur of killing. Cold-blooded connoisseur of killing. That's... Pretty good. I like that. It's a quote. Mm-hmm. Uh, this saga really inspires Christensen. Uh, and that's part of the fun, really. This saga is going to be a lot of fun. Now, other people are a little more mixed in their analysis, John. Uh, Paul Schock, <laughs> for example, calls Thorger and Thormod a pair of arrogant ruffians. And he adds, <laughs> although it's not a major saga, Fosbrother saga does not lack dry humor, pithy dialogue, and memorable scenes. Fun. Fun, Andy. Fun. Not a major saga is maybe not the best way to start us off here. But the rest of that does sound pretty good, doesn't it? Memorable, pithy, and humorous would be a, a pretty good eulogy for a person, let alone a saga. 
<laughs> and make a note of that, folks. If Andy and I end up killing each other, use that line at the police inquest. <laughs> That's not a universal opinion, though, uh, we should say. Uh, Margaret Clooney's Ross, for example, cites the florid digressions and authorial intrusions of the author as a curiosity mm-hmm. of the saga. And I think uh, we'll, we'll see some of those tonight. Yeah, that, that sounds less complimentary, but the, the whole issue of authorial intrusions is a much longer and coincidentally more florid and more intrusive conversation <laughs> that we'll be having a bit later on. Um, hey, before we dive in, I want to take a minute to go over something that shows up repeatedly when you go looking for scholarship on this saga. Hmm. Already? Uh, this sounds like end of episode talk. You, we're going to do this at, at the I, beginning? I am not bound by your artificial constructs of time. Uh, <laughs> besides, have you got any better idea of how to introduce the saga? Uh, literally hundreds of better ideas, uh, thousands. Uh, <laughs> all right. We have all, many variants and divergences we could we could explore. Great. You go think about a few of those. Uh, okay. While you do that, I'm going to talk about the fact that we're on to yet another text with multiple surviving versions. Again, yes. This is becoming a bad habit. We we just set this up with uh, Gisel and Lugusenstauter, which has uh, multiple versions. I know. And in our last saga, Thord Menace, we had a similar split history. Mm-hmm. The thing is, we've kind of wandered into one of the darker alleyways of saga study, a labyrinth of historical documents and conflicting opinions. Andy, we've stumbled into manuscript studies. Very nice. Very, very dramatic. Uh, but is there a problem here? No problem. Not, not a problem. It's just that we keep running into it. So we're not going to go into depth in it now, but I just wanted to say that it's going to be happening again repeatedly in this saga. Mm-hmm. And to give fair warning that we've got some choppy waters ahead when it comes to manuscript studies. <laughs> Is that going to happen every time we say that? Say what? Yeah, I'm not falling for that. Damn. All right, all right. Uh, manuscript studies. <laughs> there you go. I guess it is going to happen every time. Okay, so there are three different manuscript versions of this saga, mm-hmm. all of them believed to be from the long 14th century. There's the Flatter book, which is the only one to tell a complete story. Right, but that one is missing material that's in the others. Yeah, and it's the latest of the three in terms of composition date. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there's the Hauksbok, which is the earliest version of the text, but that one is missing the beginning of the story. And then, of mm-hmm. course, there's the version in the Mothravala book, uh, which is missing the ending of the saga. Right. So what this means is that we're once again dealing with a diplomatic edition. Right. This is a version of the saga that's been Frankenstein together from the surviving materials, representing scholars' best guess as to the form of the original. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So we get to look forward to sorting through different versions of this saga. And, you know, this this saga is still generating new iterations of its story. Uh, mm-hmm. John, False Brother Saga is the basis for Haldor Laxness's novel Gerpla, uh, which was written in the 1950s. Yep. A great novel. Uh, mm-hmm. While we're talking about our sources for this, we should address the time frame for the saga. Andy, when was this thing written? It was written in the Middle Ages. You sick between it was between the classical period and what we like to think of as the the Renaissance. Thank you for being the first person ever to make that joke. <laughs> no, uh, I know what you're driving at. Uh, no, no one can actually prove how old this saga is, though it's the subject of much debate. 
Exactly. Uh, none of the surviving manuscripts has a claim to being original. So the date of composition is really just sometime earlier. Mm-hmm. So if we start with uh, Stefan Einerson, whose book we reference for most of these intros, Einerson says that Fosbrojo Saga was one of the oldest of all family sagas and shows peculiarities and awkwardness of style that mark it as older than the more polished sagas. That's right, yeah. But but his evidence is textual rather than material. Uh, he's mm-hmm. not arguing for extant manuscript evidence or anything like that. No, 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 no. And he also thinks that the saga is peculiar and awkward, right? Those are quote words. Uh, yeah. And peculiar and awkward shows up in a lot of descriptions of this mm-hmm. saga. Uh, Carol Clover uses the same adjectives. Uh, but sure, let's focus on the historical provenance. Uh, yeah. Anderson thinks this author is a learned clerk, perhaps a physician, who adorned his work with poetical effusions, theological and anatomical digressions, the like of which is not found elsewhere in the sagas. Hmm. What We just read one that, I don't know if it was Thord Menace or Horde Saga, <laughs> that had some pretty elaborate descriptions of the violence. Yeah, so yeah. maybe maybe horrid, not yeah. quite right. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. But, you know, I guess that can be a solid argument if you want. Uh, it's making a huge assumption about the authorship, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, Anderson is just accepting that the author is composing the saga himself. Uh, in other words, he's assuming that the scribe is also the person who is inventing the saga. Yeah. And that's a very shaky limb to be edging out onto. Uh, We've talked before about why claims of single-person authorship can run into problems with the evidence of the text and surrounding the text. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, And in this case, we have a saga written by someone who is either way ahead of his time or who's writing later than people generally accept. Mm -hmm. Or more likely, we have a text that's being shaped by more than one person. Exactly. And Christensen sums this up nicely. Uh, although older scholarship accepted the idea that Fosbrother's Saga was one of the oldest sagas, recent studies have shown that it must be a much younger work written toward 1300. Hmm. The evidence for this is found in a large number of strange passages whose syntax and vocabulary betray late origin and strong signs of clerical or learned style. Yeah, I, honestly, I tend to agree with that. Yeah. Um, but we, what we have here is a saga that may or may not be one of the oldest sagas, according to some scholars. Uh, the one that exists in multiple forms, and one that might not have anything to do with the version originally composed. That's about right, yes. Well, isn't that just dandy? Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, I think we've arrived that there is no real conclusion here, um, <laughs> and we've already been babbling for more than 10 minutes. Um, are we ready to go? You want to... Well, we have to uh, register our Hrovenkel measurement for the saga. Of course. Yes, the Hrovenkel measurement, our official measurement of saga length, comparing it to the first saga that we covered. Um, how does False Brother Saga stack up? It's well, more than one Hrovenkel, for sure. Oh, much more. This is a significant piece of work. It, it clocks in at 32,944 words, mm-hmm. or 3.61 Hrovenkels. That's a pretty solid chunk of wood, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, we haven't had a saga this length since uh, since Ale Saga. True. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty mm. confident this one won't take us a year to get through, though. Only pretty confident? I've learned not to be too definite about these things. Uh, we ready to get this barge headed downriver? Lead on, Kron. Part one: Preludes and Outlaws. Yeah, so this one starts off a bit strangely. Yeah, it does. Uh, usually, a saga opens with one of two strategies: either situating the story historically, or by introducing the families involved. 
this one does include a single sentence about historical setting, which we'll get to in a minute, but nearly the entire first chapter is given over to a seemingly random story about Greta Asmundersen and Thorbjörg the Stout. Seemingly random. Yeah. Because, you know, as we learn later, Thorbjörg and her husband Vermund the Slender, they mm. do have a role to play in this saga, but yeah. uh, nothing about this first chapter indicates that connection. Right. Now, this is one of those saga openings that's, that's basically saying, trust me, this will pay off later. Yeah, this is a story we've seen before, obviously, in Gretchen's saga. And uh, I think we brought it up on the podcast already. Yeah, we have a few times, I think. Yeah. So if you remember, uh, Gretir is on one of his walkabouts looking for food and shelter when he wanders onto the farm of Vermund the Slender and Thorbjörg Stout. And the working men of the farm, they catch Gretir off guard and they tie him up. But in this version of the story, they're much more clearly hostile to Gretir. Uh, remember, in Gretir's saga, the farmhands were mostly just terrified of him. But in this version, they, they truss him up and they build a gallows and they're getting ready to hang him. Right, and they've even got Gretter with the noose around his neck, ready to die, when Thorbjörg returns home and interrupts them. They're they're Mm -hmm. much more actively trying to kill him. Definitely, definitely. But the outcome is the same. Uh, Thorbjörg tells the men to let Gretter go. And again, the details are a little bit different, because in Gretter's saga, Thorbjörg makes Gretter promise not to go on a revenge spree against these farmhands if they let him go. Here, she just lets him loose and tells him that he's free to do what he wants, to go where he wants, you know? Right. But, but he still doesn't kill the farmhands. No, no. Instead, he composes a verse saying that he'd have gotten himself killed if Thorbjörg hadn't saved him. Nice. It seems to complement the author's stated purpose, right? which is to demonstrate that Thorbjörg is a respected voice of authority and a strong-willed mm-hmm. person. But it also touches on a couple of other themes of the saga. One is that Thorbjörg is only the first of several impressive women in this saga. Uh, we've talked before about how some sagas are interested in women's stories, and others aren't. Yeah, and this one most definitely is. And I think one of the one of the cool things or interesting things about this opening is that the author seems to go out of his way to undercut Vermund's authority, mm. suggesting that Thorbjörg is the one that wields true justice in that household. Absolutely. And, and frankly, that's going to be put into stark relief by how poorly the male characters behave much of the time. But that brings me to the other theme, which is that... Wait, hang on. I think... Andy, can you hear me? Uh, yes. Yes, I can. What, John, uh, what, what are you doing? It's me, John, from later in the podcast. Oh. I, I had to knock out the John of your time to avoid creating a paradox. I see a paradox, yes. Go, go. Yes, we, we both have PhDs. <laughs> I see what you did there, and I hate you for it. Uh-huh. Sorry. I, I'm using the time Denorian to come back and tell you about something that's going to be important later. I hope this is actually relevant information. It will be. Later. Look, what's the point of having a Denorian time shift if we can't use it to rearrange conversational gambits, Andy? <laughs> yeah. And, and you're a future John, right? Yes. Who's president in the future? Joe Biden. I'm, I'm only from about an hour from now, man. Oh. Do me a favor. Don't lampshade how stupid this is. Yeah, no. You think no one knows how stupid this is? John from the future? I can hope. All right, uh, so I need to tell you about the future. All right, I'll play along. No, no information about the future, John. I warned you about this. The consequences could be disastrous. That's a risk we're going to have to take. The logic of our analysis of Chapter 7 depends on it. Oh, all right then. Uh... <laughs> Shoot, John, go ahead. 
On the night when we record this, we forget to set up a link between Grettir and the Sworn Brothers. Uh -huh. The protagonists of this story are being foreshadowed in part by Grettir's story. They're like studies of certain facets of Grettir's makeup. Or maybe we can say of the 11th century tragicomic saga warrior type. <laughs> That's very elaborate. Uh, so in the future, we're just waving our hands and inventing archetypes? Is that what you're saying? No, it's just that we haven't gotten around to naming one that's always been there. Uh-huh. We've had a few of these types. Men, and they're always men, who are living by a set of outmoded rules for personal conduct. Uh-huh. Yes. Yes, I, I know what you're talking about here. A man like Grettir might have been celebrated in the settlement era. Uh, we talked about this when we did the Grettir Saga episode. Um, and honestly, he's not that far different from men who are celebrated. Right, uh, but stories set in the 11th century tend to be more conscious of a Christian context. 9th century men who kill on scant provocation and have an unbending personal code are nostalgia fuel for saga writers. And since they're safely pre-Christian, they're more free to act on those traits, even if it runs afoul of Christian teaching. The 11th century is less clearly removed from the saga author's own world, so we end up with a more uncomfortable depiction of the chronic violence and unchristian fatalism that accompanies those figures. But they're also still written to be entertaining and darkly witty. So, 11th century tragicomic warrior type. Uh, I, I'm really glad to know that John from an hour from now is just as verbose, uh, but intelligent as the John of my time. Uh, Thanks, but, I think. Uh, <laughs> John from the future. Uh, we haven't actually met our protagonist yet, so we're all just taking you on faith here that what you've done disrupting the whole timeline is even relevant. Trust me. Now, I I've got to get back to my own time. Bye! I think it's time that we end this podcast, John. <laughs> I hate you. I hate you so much right now. You don't really. You hate me in the future. You can tell yourself that. <laughs> so there's a one sentence beginning to this story that sets us in time and place. Right? We said, uh, in case the Gretter story didn't already clue us in, the saga begins, In the days when St. Olaf was king, he had many chieftains under his rule, not only in Norway, but in all the lands over which he reigned. Mm -hmm. And God gave honor to all those whom the king favored most. Yes, there is a lot to deal with there besides when it's happening. Although, for the record, St. Olaf is king in Norway from about 1015 to about 1030. So that situates you in the time. Uh, he, remember, he dies mm -hmm. at the Battle of Stiklestad. Um, right. So that's our timeline for the saga. Sometime between, you know, in those 15 years, between 1015 and 1030. Sure. So there's, there's the obvious king-saint mm -hmm. thing, uh, and how Norwegian kingship becomes a different phenomenon after the conversion. And that gets really emphasized at the end of that sentence. Right? Think about that line. God gave honor to all those whom the king favored. Olaf isn't just the dispenser of royal favor or rich gifts. He's the dispenser of God's grace. He's essentially the Scandinavian monarchical equivalent of the Apostle Peter. He's given the power to hold or loose earthly things on God's behalf. Yeah, I think we can place that alongside a larger theme that we're going to be talking about later. This author has a habit of inserting religious tradition at significant moments of the narrative. And I got to tell you, it is not subtle. Actually, this might, one of, <laughs> this might be one of the most overtly moralizing sagas that we've read. 
Yeah, we'll have to keep an eye on that too. Yeah. This is turning out to be a complicated saga, and we we I mean we haven't even gotten to the main story yet. Yeah, speaking of which, part two, BFFs. So this is the part of the saga that we expect to find at the start of a saga. Mm-hmm. The introduction of the major characters. Yeah, this one is actually pretty streamlined compared to some. Yeah, it really is. We have just three families introduced at the start. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first is Halvar Klepiersen uh, and Thorolf Alstotter. Halvar is known as an overbearing man with a loud and aggressive manner. And he's already been outlawed from the southern quarter of Iceland over some killings there. Oh, he sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, and Thorolf, his wife, is the daughter of a well-respected and popular man, Alf of Dalir. Mm-hmm. Havar and Thorolf, they have one son named Thorger. And Thorger is described as tall, powerfully built, with an aggressive nature, and what the author calls a fighting temperament. Mm-hmm. Like his father, Thorger has a hot temper and a talent for stirring up trouble. Okay. Now, the second family is a successful farmer named Bersi of Dirdesmuthi uh, and his wife Thorgrid. They have a son named Thormod, uh, who is only of average height and build. His most unusual feature is his hair, which is jet black and curly. Hmm. He's a couple of years older than Thorger and a bit smarter, but not as strong. He's known as a vigorous and courageous young man with a talent for poetry and a stubborn disposition. Yes, now Thorger and Thormod are raised together in Isafjord. And they become like brothers to each other. Like sworn brothers, in fact. Uh, now, they're not exactly the same. For example, uh, Thorger actively swears off women because he doesn't like the idea of making a fool of himself trying to impress them. Mm-hmm. While Thormod is a bit of a ladies' man, or at least he'd like to be. Yeah. Uh, speaking of which, John, our translation, mm-hmm. the one that we're using, uh, the one by Martin Regal uh, mm-hmm. from the Complete Sagas collection... It actually uses the term ladies' man at the start of chapter 3 to describe yeah. Thorgeir, as in, <laughs> he says, it was said that Thorgeir wasn't much of a ladies' man. And <laughs> I had to pause over that one because, you know, I don't mind the occasional bit of modern colloquialism in a translation, especially if it adds clarity to the text meaning, but I uh, was... But, but ladies' man was a bit much for you? It, it sounded to me a little ridiculous. All I could think of was uh, Tim Meadows, the ladies' right. man, you know? <laughs> It's a lady. <laughs> so it just seemed like an odd choice. But I then checked it against the original Old Norse, and I found that the original sentence is something like, uh, Do you want to try to translate that for yeah, us? Yeah, because I obviously butchered the uh, the Old Norse. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I, 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 I know what's happening here. <laughs> what did you say? I know what's happening here. I know what I, yeah, yeah. I know what this says now. You know, I'm 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 a little rusty these days, but I do believe that the best literal translation, as Martin Regal figured out, would be it was said that Thorgeir wasn't much of a ladies' man. <laughs> that is a fully literal translation. Yes, it is. Um uh means ladies' man, literally. Someone alert Tim Meadows that he has a rival in medieval Iceland. I love our job sometimes. I do too. And who had who knew that ladies man had its origins uh, way back oh when? Oh my god. What is the what is the uh, um, the Icelandic uh, 11th century equivalent of Quavassier? <laughs> um okay. So the point is that Thormod and Thorgeir disagree about women and other things, but they do share a basic outlook on the world. 
They both have a tendency to get into fights and refuse to back down. They both gain a reputation as unfair men prone to pushing people around. And remember, these are the guys that Paul Schott calls a pair of arrogant ruffians. Maybe unsurprisingly, they're not the most popular men in Isafjord. No, and, and they know it. They don't care, but mm-hmm. they know it. Uh, and they know that this combination of belligerent, unpopular, and stubborn means that they're both likely to eventually get themselves killed in a brawl. And this author isn't even bothering with any subtle foreshadowing nonsense. We're told flat out that this would turn out to be true, that both of them would eventually die fighting. Uh, so Thorger and Thormod both make an agreement that whichever of them outlives the other will avenge the killing. Yeah, so that's pretty much it for that story, really. Um, it's a quick intro to the two characters. We don't see much mm-hmm. of their, their youth or hear much about their parents, really. Uh, we've just got right. two belligerent kids who eventually pick one fight too many and get killed. Done and done. It's a little more complicated than that. Well, it's always more complicated. Okay, so complicated is the wrong word, maybe. Let's go with longer. It's yes. a lot longer than that. Uh-huh. Is that better? We're not getting out of here that easily is the point. All right, yeah, but... Uh, I'd say these two aren't really good at complicated. I think that's one of the things well, about them. Yeah, but the narrative might be, though. Uh, so so this clause in their agreement that they'll take responsibility for avenging each other, this means we're getting into Blood Brother territory. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that's the author's cue to offer a bit of a moralizing history lesson. He writes, and I'm going to put on my best medieval cleric voice for this one. Would you? Though people called themselves Christian in those days... Christianity was a new and very undeveloped religion, and many of the sparks of heathendom still flickered, manifesting in undesirable customs. It had been a tradition among men of renown to become bound to each other by a vow which stated that whoever outlived the other would undertake to avenge his death. For this ritual, they had to walk under a triple arch of raised turf, thus signifying their oath. The arch was made by scoring out three lengths of turf and leaving them attached to the ground at both ends, then raising them so that it was possible to walk under them. Thorgeir and Thormod undertook this rite as part of their sworn agreement. Amen. So, um, where are 11th century monks getting that much helium? Oh, it's from the gelding, I believe. Ah, I see. <laughs> uh, so, we've seen this ritual before. Uh, or yes. at least we've seen yes, an we attempt have. at this ritual before in Gisli's saga. It didn't go so well. No. Gisli and his brother Thorkel attempted to cement their friendships with their brothers-in-law, Thorgrim Gothi and Vestin Vestinson, through exactly this ritual. Uh, in fact, the details are so similar that we have to accept there's a common source involved here, or else that this was a ritual widely known and accepted as historical by saga writers. Which, of course, is not the same as saying the ritual was actually historical, although, of course, that's a third possibility. Yeah, except that in Gisli's saga, the ritual falls apart, right? Uh, Thorgrim didn't want to bind himself to Vestin and create a new obligation for himself to avenge him if he dies or has problems. Mm -hmm. And in the end, no one undertook the ritual. So that's where the bad blood started to come from. The obligation that Thorgrim was trying to avoid was exactly what's happening here. Thorgar and Thormod are swearing to take responsibility for the revenge if and when one of them gets killed. Right. And I think we decided at the time that it actually made sense for Thorgrim to be cautious about that vow. As a Gothi, as a chieftain, he had a lot of social and legal obligations already. There was no reason to tie himself to Vestin in a ritual that would have essentially made them family. 
Yes, but that doesn't mean that Thorgrim wasn't generally a jerk. Oh, total jerk. Huge jerk. But in this case, a justified jerk. Yeah. Anyway, this is a different situation, isn't it? Thorgair and Thormod are both at about the same level of society, but I think more importantly, they're already close friends who would feel obligated to avenge one another anyway. All this does is formalize the arrangement. It's also a warning to others that killing one of them will bring the other down on that killer's head, which I think is really important here. Yeah, I mean, it also legitimizes their existing bond, right? I mean, if they don't have this bond taking revenge would legally fall to their families. Sure. Uh, Someone who's just a friend would be at legal risk of starting a second feud by avenging a friend. But a blood brother, that's legit. Mm -hmm. That opens the same access to rights of revenge that a family member would enjoy. Yeah, okay. So Thorgar and Thormod have swapped spit. They cut their fingers. They made a BFF locket. They bought matching outfits. Um, (laughs) Anything else? Uh, well, they, they celebrate by continuing to be complete pains in the posterior uh-huh. to the entire region. Uh, they like to go out riding all over the district, and they're not shy about throwing their weight around when they're on the road. Right. And there's a rumor that follows them, that their fathers are actually encouraging their bad behavior. Yeah, I thought that was an interesting little aside that the author mm-hmm. inserts there. Um, do you think they are? Are the fathers encouraging this? I, we don't really know. Uh, it's enough of a rumor, though, that the local chieftain feels compelled to do something about it. And that chieftain is... Vermund the Slender! Hey! Something in this saga connects to something else. Yes. We have ourselves a plot. Yes. So, a Vermund. Uh, Vermund is, by the way, he is the brother of Killerstur, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. Yes. Yep. Killerstur is a great guy. Um, so, Vermund calls Thorger and Thormod's fathers... Uh, like the print, like the school principal, uh, he calls Havar and Bersi, and he he wants to meet with them. He really doesn't want to meet with them. He just wants to yell at them. Yes, this whole meeting has the feel of a headmaster berating the parents of school troublemakers. Yeah, you you probably wouldn't know anything about that, would you? How would I? I've never been a headmaster. Uh, I was thinking the other side, but okay, yes, yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. So Vermund says. You Havar are not from this district, and you have settled here without leave from me or anyone. Up to now, I've made no complaint about your dwelling here, but now it seems that your son Thorgair is rather unruly and aggressive. I would like you to move your home and goods away from Isafjord. And Bersi, you and your son may stay because you are from this area. It's my hope that perhaps Thormod will be less of a problem if he parts company with Thorgair. Yet this really does sound like they're having their desks moved apart. Oh, absolutely. Like if, if, if we can just separate them, the one will be better. Uh, and John, they have been very naughty. And as mm-hmm. a matter of fact... Spitballs and everything. Yeah. Thorgir is about 14 or 15 when this happens, and I think Thormod's about 16. So the feel of a pair of high school delinquents, it's pretty appropriate. So the Havar thing, uh, the fact that he's from the South and moved because of those killings we mentioned earlier. Yeah, th- that's factoring in here, I think. Verbund mm-hmm. sees a chance to use this situation to get rid of a known killer and troublemaker and his son. Well, one out of two ain't bad, yeah. uh, because Havar replies, Vermund, you have the power to make me leave Isifjord, but I suspect Thorgir will want to choose for himself where he stays. Yeah, and that's pretty much how it goes. Uh, Havar does move south to Borgafjord, where all the cool saga figures hang out, but uh, <laughs> Thorgir splits his time between his father's new farm, staying with Thormod's family, and visiting his cousin Ari in a different part of Isifjord. So he's around. Right. And this is where we finally get that third family dropped into the saga. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, Thorger's mother, Thorolf, has a sister named Thorgerd. Uh, Thor, 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 Thor. Uh, she's married to Ari Marson, and they have two sons, Thorgils and Ilugi Arason. Everyone write that? Uh, you got that all written down, everyone? Yeah, get, get, keep track of all that. Uh, these guys, uh, Thorgils and, Ilu- and uh, Ilugi, are Thorger's cousins. Mm-hmm. They're significantly older than Thorger, though. Uh, Thorgils has a son named Ari, who's about Thorger's age. And that's who Thorger is spending time with. Yeah. So this is his first cousin once removed, I think is the way that works. Okay. Uh, I have to believe that that itinerary, right, moving from his father's place to Thormod to Ari and back again, I have to believe that's a deliberate provocation, right? I mean, he's, he's deliberately choosing to move into, out of, and around Vermin's jurisdiction. Oh, absolutely. He's he's moving all over the place. Um, mm-hmm. it, and it, he's very good, visible as he's doing it, just to stick it in yes. Vermin's nose, under Vermin's nose, mm-hmm. right? Uh, of course, it could also be just the desire to stay in touch with the families he's closest to in the area. I think that's worth noting. Um, he's mm-hmm. maintaining these relationships, these allies, um, by visiting them. So Ari is his cousin. Thormald's his blood brother. Um, but yeah, it's it's probably also very much a provocation. Well, I mean, knowing that it's Thorger, it's almost got to be. Provoking people is kind of what he does. Mm-hmm. He can infuriate people by sitting quietly in an adjoining room. That's a two-way street, though. Uh, He also is easily driven to violence himself. And it's Mm -hmm. not long before he gets word of an event that is guaranteed to bring out his killer instincts. Because while Thorger is visiting in Isafjord that winter, he hears the news that his father, Havar Klepersen, has been killed. That is news indeed. Mm -hmm. Part 3 Someone's knocking at the door. So we don't need to go deeply into the story, but the death of Havar revolves around an argument about a horse. A man named Yod borrows a horse from Havar's farm and then hangs on to it longer than they'd agreed. When Yod tries to avoid Havar's farm to keep the horse for a while longer, Havar runs after him and grabs the horse back. Yod, who like nearly everyone else we've met so far, has a reputation for a hot temper, immediately drives his spear through Havar's back. And then he steals the horse and leaves Havar to die. You know, the the Iceland of this saga is not a very pleasant place to live. It no, seems. it really isn't. I mean, it's, we're, we're, I'm still waiting for the person who's a really accomplished flower arranger. <laughs> um, yeah. So anyway, uh, obviously everyone's looking for Thorgeir's reaction to this, but... Mm-hmm. Uh, when he gets the news, he barely reacts at all, and I, I think it's worth reading this description of how he reacts, or doesn't. It says, His face did not redden, because no anger ran through his skin. Nor did he grow pale, because his breast stored no rage. Nor did he become blue, because no anger flowed in his bones. In fact, he showed no reaction whatsoever to the news, because his heart had been hardened in the almighty maker's forge, to dare anything. Well, that last bit was a little incongruous. It, it, it is, yes. Uh, there are a lot of these little interpolations, mm-hmm. and we're going to go into detail about them at some point. For now, though, I think we should stick to the story and focus on the fact that Thorger has a father to avenge. Yeah, to be clear, uh, the lack of a reaction isn't a sign that Thorger isn't planning on doing something about this, or even that he's unaffected by the news, right? He's showing manly restraint by controlling his reaction. Mm-hmm. 
He's showing a lot of restraint, though. <laughs> um, and and that, that hard and heart to dare anything bit at the end. Mm-hmm. The saga really depicts Thorgar as a, a very emotionally distant kind of person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we'll see, emotional connections to others, it's not exactly his strong suit. Uh, I think you're onto something there. Uh, but Thorger is also not a fool, and he's way too cognizant of his reputation and the expectations of his culture to forego mm-hmm. his revenge, regardless of how emotionally devastated he is or isn't. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There aren't really a lot of ways to dodge that responsibility, especially mm-hmm. as an only son, as Thorger is. Not that he'd want to, because yeah. Thorger's not that contrarian. Mm-hmm. Uh, given that he's more than happy to commit violence on the flimsiest of pretenses, I think he's certainly willing to spill blood when it's culturally expected of him to do so, and often yeah. when it's not. Yeah. Now, in this case, his personal enthusiasm for violence and the demands of honor, even the law, are all pointing the same way, which mm-hmm. in this case is directly toward Yod's farm. Yeah, it's nice when things work out like that. Very tidy. Yeah, we like tidy. Uh, so Thorger visits his cousin Thorgils and asks for some help crossing the fjord, since it's winter and the traveling is difficult. And then he makes his way south using frozen rivers to speed his travel. He's able to move more quickly than anyone expects, and on a dark and foggy night, he arrives at Yod's place at Skeljabreka. The narrative shifts then to inside the house, where everyone is just settling in front of the fire after completing the evening chores. And suddenly, there's a knock from outside. And Yod says, Someone's knocking at the door. One of you go see about it. And a farmhand then goes and checks on the door, and he sees just the outline of a man out in the foggy night. It's very dark out there. Mm-hmm. And the man says, My name is Vigfus. His name is Vigfus? His name's not Vigfus. Oh, no, no, John. He's incognito, you see. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's using Vigfus because that name means eager to kill. I see. So incognito in the very specific sense of telling the first person he talks to exactly what he intends. More or less, yes, of course. Well, uh, come in, quote-unquote, Vigfus. You may stay the night if you like. I don't accept offers of lodging from a slave. Go tell Yolder to come out. So, uh, so if I understand correctly, uh, Thorgir is Batman? Uh, I mean, he's probably a... Uh, a blend, a little uh-huh. blend. I was going for like yeah. you know, like a, a kind of a Clint Eastwood, uh, sure, rough and tumble fella. You know, sure, fair enough. You know, the dirty uh, hairy type, the Batman with no name. <laughs> that's that's right. Uh, so uh, this farmhand sucks his teeth for a second, and then turns around and goes back inside. Mm-hmm. Uh, Yod asks who's at the door, and the farmhand replies, "I have no idea who he is. I suspect he doesn't know himself either." I love it. I, I, I see how the farmhand ended up in his position yeah. of low <laughs> low status because his voice is, uh, it, he just belongs there naturally because of Fair the way enough. he sounds. Yeah. Um, this is also one of the wonderful thing about sagas too. Uh, anonymous farmhands get to deliver snarky lines like that. It's kind of yeah. cool. No, it's a definite witticism contender there. Yeah. Uh, it's already. Uh, so Yod realizes that this is probably some kind of trouble and grabs his helmet and spear before going to the door and asking who's out there. My name is Thorgir. Thorgir who? Uh, the, the son of Havar. 
Yeah, this is clearly not going the way Thorger expected. It I to. know, right? Isn't that great? <laughs> he's got this dramatic entrance, or you know, and then he's like, "Thorger, oh. who?" <laughs> you know, you travel through the wind or weather to confront your father's killer on a dark, fog, and shrouded night. It's a bit of a letdown for the guy to not know who you are. Yeah, it's a, it's a little awkward. Yeah. <clears throat> okay, why are you here? Well, I don't know what the outcomes to be, but I'm here to find out whether you'll offer compensation to me for the slaying of my father. Look, kid, I don't know if you're aware, but I've killed many a man, and I've never once paid compensation. Oh, well, I didn't... I didn't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. I love this dialogue. It's so unexpected. It doesn't go the way you think. I I can't decide whether it's funnier if they're messing with each other, or if they're both seriously just surprised by each other. No, I think this author's very clever. Um, There's several moments just in the sections we're covering tonight where he he builds something up, like this, this... He's traversing the fjord in the in the nighttime, crossing rivers. It's foggy, it's dark. You're expecting this great big, you know, action scene or this vengeance, and then you get this very ridiculous dialogue that takes you out of the moment. <laughs> I didn't know it's that great. is great. Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't know that, but it's still my duty to ask, since I'm the closest to the man you've slain. Well, <coughs> I'm not averse to giving you some pittance. But I'll not pay you compensation for the slaying, Thorgear, or others will come making similar claims on me. Yeah, and they, they keep talking for a bit, but without uh-huh. making any real progress. And as they talk, it becomes obvious that Yolf, he still can't see clearly out into the darkness. Mm-hmm. But Thorgear can see him perfectly outlined in the doorway. Right, and that's an opportunity that Thorgear can't pass up. Mm-hmm. And so while they're still talking... He flips his spear point up and thrusts it right through Yod's stomach. Yod falls backward into the house where his men gather round to try to save his life. But the, the wound is right through Yod's innards. And of course, he dies during the night. Yes. And meanwhile, Thorgir turns and walks away into the night. He, he doesn't stop until he reaches his mother's farm in the pre-dawn hours. And once again, in the darkness, he knocks on the farmhouse, on the farmhouse door. But this time... A long time passes before anyone opens the door. Right, and that's because inside, Thorgir's mother Thorolf has told a male servant to go find out who's at the door and what they want. And once again, we're being set up for something that never happens. The servant doesn't want to get out of bed. Uh, And when he finally does, he just looks out a crack to see a man outside and then goes back to bed and pulls the covers over his head. (laughs) And when Thorolf asks who it is, the servant grumbles, I don't know who it is and I don't care. (laughs) so funny Uh, Thorolf berates him for a lack of curiosity and then sends a female servant to see what's happening (laughs) yeah but but I like it's the female servant that's got to go see right Uh, but as if she doesn't have enough to do right Uh, but meanwhile Thorgir's tired of waiting at his own parents door Mm -hmm. and just lets himself in and when the second servant enters the main room well Thorgir's sitting there by himself Probably a little annoyed at being kept standing outside for so long. Right. Well, once again, he's been setting up this sort of this dramatic moment where he arrives yeah. after having taken revenge for his father. And the <laughs> servant doesn't bother to open the door for him. <laughs> yeah. Uh, once she knows who's come, uh, his mother obviously rushes to him with a lantern uh, to ask him for the news. And does she does she know what has happened already? I think like, we have to assume that she knows why her son's showing up at 4 a.m. a few days after her husband was killed, right? Well, I, yeah. I, I don't suppose she knows whether anything has happened yet. Right? Uh, Thorger might be stopping to comfort his mother before starting to seek revenge. 
yeah, I guess that's possible. But I, I suspect she knows her son better than that. <laughs> and Thorgeir immediately offers this news. Did you hear a man's been wounded this evening in Skelliabreka? Who was responsible? I cannot deny I had a part in this. How bad was the wound? Well, I don't think the wound he suffered is going to need any binding. Let's put it that way. And obviously Thorolf is thrilled to hear this. That was no child's deed. May your hands always serve you this well, my son. Yeah, see, that's an important moment. Because Thorolf's blessing foreshadows Thorgeir's entire career, really. Mm -hmm. He's going to rely on his fighting skill more and more to keep him alive. At the cost of a long trail of bodies behind him. Right. It's something we've seen from various angles in different sagas. Right? The, the mother's blessing to a son's first act of violence. Uh, it's kind of a subset of the so-called cold council of women who urge men to commit violent replies, reprisals against uh, the family's enemies. Right? Uh, which is exactly what Thorolf has done here. But they can approve more random violence as well. And maybe see it as an auspicious sign for their son's careers. Sure. Yeah, I mean, Ail Scott Grimson's mother, Bera, uh, is a great example of that. Remember, yeah, Ail yeah. makes his first kill when he's like six or seven years old? Yeah, six. Yeah, he's a precocious little yeah. butcher. Yeah, he really is. Uh, he goes all axe murdery on an 11-year-old who humiliated him and beat him up at a ball game. Pretty yeah, it's sad. sort of an extreme way to curb child bullying, but it's effective. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean, it does undeniably reduce repeat offenders. Fair. Uh, but Ail's mother, remember, she responded by saying that he's showing tremendous promise and that he'd probably be the skipper of a Viking ship someday. Right. Uh, well, by Ail's standards, uh, Thor is a late bloomer. He's he's he 15. Is, yeah. By his age, Ail was already nearly a decade into his career as a killer. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, Thorgeir is killing adults, not other kids. Mm. But uh, I suppose that's just his peer group, really. 15-year-olds are essentially adults in this period. So Yeah, but it's not really his peer group, is it? Adult or no, Thorger is just some kid at this point. Mm-hmm. And Yod is a known commodity as an experienced warrior and a merciless killer. Yeah. Uh, Yod should have been way out of Thorger's league. Uh, when word gets around as to what's happened, everyone's stunned that Yod has been killed by a single teenager. And an unknown one, too, remember. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thorger's parents only recently moved into the area and Thorgeir was still spending most of his time in Isafjord taunting Vermont. Yeah. Uh, so he comes kind of out of nowhere. Right. Now, now we know that Thorgeir took advantage of the dark, foggy night and Yol's night blindness to strike an unexpected blow. One might call it uh, a cheap shot. I mean, one might, but, but no one else knows that. And the saga author also wants to use this as a chance to shoehorn in a short and somewhat bizarre tangential statement. I'm going to, I guess I'll adopt your terrible voice for this. Well, I think it's appropriate if you're trying to, you know, model yourself yeah, yeah. on a medieval cleric of Fair some enough. kind. Um, it was no great wonder that Thorgir killed Yoth, since the almighty creator had forged in Thorgir's breast such a strong and sturdy heart that he was as fearless and brave as a lion. And as all good things <laughs> come from God, so too does steadfastness and that is given to all bold men together with a free will, that they may themselves choose whether to do good or evil. Thus Jesus Christ has made Christians his sons and not his slaves, so that he might reward all according to their deeds. 
it's so heavy handed and so yeah, out of place. It really is. <laughs> yeah, there's so much to deal with here. Uh, let, let's start with how unconnected this is from the story. Yeah. This revenge episode is a lot of things, but a clear moral lesson about the responsible use of God's gifts, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I, I absolutely agree it's unconnected, and we, we can talk about the implications of that. But whether it tracks as a moral lesson depends on what flavor of Christian logic we think this saga is putting forward. The uh, attack your enemies from the dark and leave them holding their guts in with their hands kind of Christian logic? Is that the kind <laughs> we're talking about? I, more or less. Right? I mean, we can compare this to something like Amundi the Blind calling on God to judge between him and looting. Right? The man who killed Amundi's father. This is in Njal's saga. Amundi is suddenly granted vision for the first moment in his life and immediately kills looting and offers a prayer to God. Then his vision darkens again and never returns. Now, of course, in that case, it's hard to prove from the text what's happening. Was the miracle that Amundi could now see to gain revenge on his father's slayer? Or is the return of his sightlessness a sign of God's anger at the misuse of a miraculous gift of healing? Um, I tend to think it's the former, but mm -hmm. Amundi's situation is admittedly pretty ambiguous. But, uh, John, this one is less so. Thorgeir uses situational tactics to get the drop on a more experienced opponent, but mm -hmm. the author seems disengaged from the immediate circumstances in favor of this mini-discourse on free will and the divine <laughs> gifts of skill and courage. Yeah. Uh, no, I, this is the first major insertion of the authorial voice in this way. It won't be the last. Uh, these authorial interjections, called clauser, or simply clauses, they aren't unheard of in the family sagas, but they're unusual. And mm -hmm. this saga uses them frequently. Right, yes. And remember, Margaret Clooney's Ross comment about the florid digressions and authorial intrusions of False Brother Saga. Mm -hmm. This is part of a wider debate about whether a non-intrusive style and objective authorial persona are characteristic of the early sagas or not. Right, so in other words, is False Brother Saga an unusual early example of this elaborate intrusive authorial style, or is it a typical example of its era of saga writing? Yeah, and just to keep us on our toes, there's the related question of when exactly this saga was produced. Right. As we said earlier, most modern scholars are coming around to the idea that False Brother Saga is an important piece of evidence that the traditional understanding of saga evolution might be wrong. Yeah. You want to you wanna open this can of worms? Can's open, Andy. I can't stop All the right. worms from dancing. Uh, so the traditional version is that the saga writing uh, traditionally moves from a relatively bare bones and spare narrative style to a more rhetorically involved and overtly moralizing style. Or at least a style that wears its authorial positions a little bit more openly. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, but there's a strong argument to be made that the trend was in the opposite direction, that narratives got less ornate and more sparely written over the saga writing age. Which, it's not hard to develop a line of reasoning that supports that idea. Right? Think about the context for early saga writing. It's the 13th century, Iceland is acclimatizing to Norwegian control, and continental literature, with its robust tradition of moralizing authorial voices, is strongly influencing northern writing. Mm -hmm. It's easy to see how that might exert some shaping influence over the earliest saga writers. Yeah, and in that case, we might look for evidence of an evolution away from those influences or towards some other model in the later saga writing decades. Uh-huh. Yeah, maybe a nostalgic impulse toward a perceived simplicity or purity of earlier poetry or writing. Yeah. Uh, whatever it is, it's increasingly being accepted as a likely scenario. Not universally accepted. There are still people who see the more spare narratives as being 
uh, more basic and more kind of uh, original. Mm-hmm. And and that means having to rethink a fair number of assumptions that have been made about the order in which the texts were written. Exactly. If you want to think there is an order. Right. And, and to make things even more complicated slash interesting, we can introduce the problem of oral versus literary composition. So let's do that for, let's say, about 20 seconds. 20 seconds. Uh, am <laughs> I supposed to time this? I'm not timing this. We need to buy a stopwatch. Uh, Okay, so the basic version is that we can't just think about the composition of a saga as a creation of a single author. If we see a sudden interpolation of a Christian moral lesson in a text that otherwise seems indifferent to religious messaging, it's fair to ask whether the original text has been filtered through a later copyist lens. In other words, we have to wonder about how the text would have been received by subsequent generations of readers and writers without being able to know for sure at what point in the text's history the surviving written version has been created. That was 30 seconds. Damn! It's close. It's close. Let's do my best. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think it's a that's a big question, and there's a lot one could say about that, but, yeah. you know. I mean, it's a question that is worth asking, right? It's not one that we're going to answer yeah. right here, obviously. Uh, but interestingly, uh, right after that moralizing moment of the narrative... The author introduces for the first time a draupa about Thorgir written later by Thormod. Yeah, and a, a draupa is a, a long-form poem built around a repeated refrain. Mm-hmm. And incidentally, if this is a draupa, we don't seem to ever get the refrain part, which is odd. Right. <laughs> it's possible that the term is just being used here to mean a poem in praise of someone, some kind of memorial poem. Right. Well, whatever it is, uh, Thormod composes this poem about Thorgir's life. And the killing of Yod is treated as an inflection point in his career. The slayings began when the wealth giver brought doom to Yod, Klang's son's heir. The wave horse's launcher was brave. Havar's vengeance was won when the sea steed's god was fifteen years of age. Resolute, he wrought that deed. There's that terse narrative style. Sure. It, it's from a poem, though, not from the saga itself, right? which means that this is a second and, frankly, subtler way to add commentary on a saga within a tradition of sparse writing. Right? Mm-hmm. The narrative isn't commenting on the action. Right? We have plausible deniability here. It's just reporting what was said about events by an observer or through hearsay. And that's usually explicit, just as it is here. Uh, a significant mm-hmm. event takes place, such as a revenge killing, and then the saga says something like, As Avon the Plagers wrote... Or, as Thormod says in the Drapa he composed, uh, which you see in the yes. uh, the King sagas and the Bishop sagas all the time. Of course. Uh, or sometimes it's more immediate and happens in real time in the narrative, as a diegetic commentary through poetry. Right? And in that case, it's usually by the person who has just performed the significant act. Right? Someone else asks, Did you take revenge for your father? Followed by something like, Grim replied with a verse. I love that you threw threw the word diegetic in there. Uh, you really need to really need to use that that jargon. John replied with a verse. Oh, please do. What's your verse, John? Oh, um, the the well educated bearer of Balaam's burdens <laughs> asked me to share Odin's gift. Uh-huh. No, nah, that's it. That's <laughs> Balaam's burdens. Good one. Uh, anyway. The point is that poetry can either be introduced into the narrative directly as speech or indirectly as a source commenting on the action. Either way, 
it's less intrusive than the author's commentaries in this saga. Right. Although some of that is conventional. Right? We're, just, we're just used to periodic insertions of poetry in these stories, and so we don't register them as intrusive. Yeah, I suppose so. That's true. By the way, we'll talk a more, more about this in our next episode, but this is pretty generally accepted as a legitimate surviving poem, with a good chance that it was written by the historical Thorma. Yeah. I mean, it would be cool to cover that next time. I, I want to yeah. say, you know, as I was reading this one, it, mm-hmm. for no reason at all, it feels more authentic. The poetry feels more authentic mm-hmm. to me. I don't know why, um, but it, we can explore that next time. I will, yeah. I will say this translation by Regal really makes the poem as clear as possible, narratively speaking. Mm-hmm. It's not quite that simple in the original, but Thormald's poetry is notably straightforward. It's true. Uh, the Kennings are pretty standard as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think for our purposes, the most significant line is the first one. He said, The slayings began when he killed Yolth. Uh, a settlement is reached for this killing, but Thorgir is just getting started. Hmm. Part four. Stand up, lads. Now, the following year, Thorgir and Thormod continue to spend most of their time together. They're usually either at Thormod's father's farm or traveling around the district. And eventually they buy a small ferry boat and sail up and down the coast with seven friends. But they have a hard time finding anywhere that they're welcome, for obvious reasons. Yeah, and that's a problem because the combination of their dinky little ship and some bad weather means they really can't leave the bay where they've ended up. So they quickly wear out their welcome with everyone in the area. Well, almost everyone, because as winter moves in, they make one more attempt to sail out to the open sea to do a bit of whale hunting, but uh, a storm blows up and they nearly lose their ship to the darkness and the waves. Yeah, once again, we have saga figures who aren't especially skilled sailors. Well, I mean, there's a reason that most stories just say that the protagonist catches a ride with a ship that was already heading out of Iceland. Right. It's a much neater narrative, really. There's less chance of yeah. drowning. Uh But speaking of which, we left the brothers half-drowned in the bay. Right, yeah. They're forced to put into ports, and remember, it's winter. Mm -hmm. And so with all the spray and the wind and the cold, their clothes are frozen onto their bodies by the time that they find a a, a boat, a bathhouse, a boathouse. I mean, hey. By the time they find a boathouse and a farm. You've got your priorities, they've got theirs. (laughs) And when they introduce themselves at the farm, they meet... Sigurfljof, a widow who is the owner of the farm. And Sigurfljof is is a well-respected woman with a reputation for giving wise advice. She has them change out of their wet clothes, feeds them, and gives them a good night's sleep. Good hostess. Okay, but is letting these two into her house a sign of wisdom? I mean, they haven't got the best reputations. Well, as it happens, the bad weather keeps the sworn brothers beached at Sigurfljof's farm for a few days. And when the weather finally clears and the brothers are preparing to return to their whale hunt, they get to talking with Sigurfljof, and she tells them about her enemies on the opposite side of the fjord. Ah, there it is. Mm-hmm. See, sometimes, John, wisdom is about giving yourself good counsel. Sure. Uh, now, the people that Sigurfljof just happens to be bringing up are a father and son team, Ingolf Svidin and his son, Thorbrand. Uh, Thorbrand is an accomplished warrior, but also an overbearing and difficult man. And his father is a troublemaker with an aggressive attitude. We said everybody in this saga is prone to violence. Uh, And uh, Ingolf isn't above using other people's fear of his son to rob and cheat his neighbors. 
Uh, Sigurdfjall explains that Ingolf and Thorbrand have many enemies, but they're protected by Vermund the Slender because Ingolf is uh, careful to give him expensive gifts on a regular basis. Yeah. Essentially, they're paying a license fee to the Gothi so that they can be bastards to everyone else in the district. Yeah. I mean, that's that's a moment that makes Vermin look kind of bad, in my opinion. Yeah. I don't, Vermin doesn't come off fantastically well in most of this saga. Yeah. Uh, but Sigurdfljoth is just mentioning, just casually bringing up that these two uh, villains are just across the fjord and that mm. many people would maybe uh, regard it as a favor, a great favor, if someone were to, uh, I don't know, wander over there and maybe, you know, just a little bit of stabby stabby. Oh, yeah. yeah. A bit of the old, is that a scabbard or your spleen routine? Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. Uh, Thormod immediately realizes what she wants and why it's a bad idea. Yeah. I, I don't know whether you are giving good counsel in this. Those two are friends of Vermund. There's sure to be consequences if any harm is brought to them. Well, he's not wrong. And remember, these boys are already on Vermund's naughty list. Yeah, but Andy, you have to understand, there's an older woman here looking at them with contempt. You think yourselves great fighting men when you're harassing local crofters, but you grow fearful as soon as a real test is put to you. Well, Thorgir's not going to take that. He immediately Mm -hmm. jumps to his feet and he says, Stand up, lads, and let's pay the woman for our stay. It's a great line. It is. Uh, and Thormod can't find an argument against both Sigurdfjolf and Thorgir. And so he and the other men strap on weapons and make their way slowly across the frozen fjord in the dim pre-dawn light. Unfortunately, they don't use the walking time to work out any kind of a plan of attack at all. And so when they reach Ingol's farm, they just sort of wander around in his yard for a few minutes. <laughs> uh, and their ice-crusted boots crunching around in the paddock wakes Ingolf up. Yeah. Again, uh, a nice build-up leading to something a little less yep. Yep. <laughs> than what we were expecting. Very good undermining expectations. Yeah, yeah. Uh, both Ingolf and Thorbrand are in the habit of sleeping fully dressed with weapons nearby for some mm-hmm. reason. Uh, I guess they're under no illusions about their popularity with their neighbors. <laughs> uh, and they actually they have two farmhands who are experienced fighters as well. So the four of them are now awake and armed and ready by the time Thorgir finally knocks on the door. And they immediately ask, who's there? You may have heard a report of Thorgir Haverson and Thormod Bersesson. Now you can see them for yourselves. I noticed that after what happened at Yod's house, he's not taking any risks on people not knowing who he is. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> I, I'm going to put my whole name in there. Right, let me just get the whole, <laughs> let me get the whole resume in there. Yeah, I don't want... <laughs> sure, we've heard of you both. Though rarely anything good. Why are you here? We've come to redress an imbalance. We're going to give you a choice. Either you hand over all the property you've wrongfully taken and buy back your lives, or you can expect to defend your property like men to the death. Not to the pain? No, to the death. (laughs) I was quite clear about that. (laughs) Well, what we took, we took like men and bravely. We would not part with it any other manner. As for you, Thorgir, I think you'll sooner be breakfasting on my spear than on my property. And that's a notable witticism right there. Yeah, there's a lot of good lines in this one. Uh, yeah, witticism is going to be a tough category. 
Yeah. Thorgeir replies that his dreams are often prophetic, and I've dreamed a great deal about myself, but not much about you. <laughs> but I've Ouch. dreamed that your lady hell will take you, and your property will be forfeit. Yeah, and with that, Thorgeir and Thormod uh, rush the doorway, but they tell their men to stand back so the two of them can do the killing. The fight's cramped and difficult, with mm-hmm. Thormod and Thorgeir stabbing through the doorway into the dark house without having a clear sight of their enemies. Yeah, and meanwhile, the four men inside can see their attackers very clearly, but have trouble getting a clear shot at them because of the door frame and the crowded space. After several minutes of struggle, Thorbrand is killed by Thorgeir, and Thormod manages to kill Ingolf. Uh, the two farmhands are injured, but they're left alive. And Thormod later describes the moment in another verse from his Draupa. I can tell how the master of the awning horse took the life of Ingolf's son. Word of his death spread wide at the hand of the famed mover of mass stallions Thorbrand fell. While others lost their lives there, actions speak more loudly than words. Thormod's poetry focused on Thorgir's actions instead of his own, but that does make sense because it's a poem dedicated to Thorgir's career, remember? Yeah, I mean, we'll probably skip a few of these because they get pretty repetitive. Uh, but I do like Master of the Awning Horse and Famed Mover of Mast mm-hmm. Stallions. Yeah, it's good uh, stuff. In other words, a skipper or sea captain. I like those as kennings for Thorgir because it's a little misplaced as a subject compliment given that the two of them couldn't sail their way out of the bay about two days prior to this. <laughs> Yeah, well, that's why you write poetry about your friends. Uh, uh-huh. Emphasize the positive, maybe sweep a few crumbs under the rug, you know? Sure. <laughs> so Thorger and Thormod, they load up a couple of horses with goods from the house, and they drive the three fattest bulls from the farm and back to Sigurfjolf's farm. And she's predictably delighted with them. Well, you cut a good piece of flesh from the whale after all, Love and it. you've taken revenge for many men's injuries into the bargain. I'll go to Voltsjord and tell the news to Vermund. You must remain here. Wait for me to return. Hmm. That's going to be an awkward conversation with Vermund, I think. Well, I mean, all the more reason to leave it to a woman famed for giving good advice. True. Sigurfjall throws out with a small crew of men, reaching Isafjord late in the evening. Uh, she's not wasting any time here, right? It's important to be first with the news in a situation like this. Mm-hmm. Sure, yeah. Whoever reaches Vermund first is going to have a clean slate to work with, right? Explanation-wise, anyway. Yeah. Uh, we learned back in the first chapter that Thorbjörg Stout, Vermund's wife, is famed for her firm mind and strong character. Yeah. No one's saying that about Vermund, who's a bit of a pushover and tends to believe what he's told, it seems. Yeah. Uh, remember, this is the same guy from way back at Urbages Saga who brought two Swedish berserks to Iceland because yes. he got convinced it would show up his brother, Killerstuer. <laughs> and that did not work out well. No, no. And then he got talked into giving the same berserks to his brother when they became hard for him to manage. Yeah. Uh, Vermund's seemingly effective as a chieftain, but he's definitely a bit of a bit soft in the resolve department. Mm-hmm. So getting to him first is clearly a good idea. Yeah. Although I have to say, once Sigurfjolf reaches Vermund, she's in no hurry to spill the beans. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vermund welcomes her warmly. Apparently they're friends. Uh, but when he asks what news she's heard lately, she says, eh, there's not much to report. Uh, they then spend the evening catching up on small talk, and Sigurfjolf and her men enjoy a comfortable night in Vermin and Thorbjörg's home. 
Yeah, so uh, rushing to Verman's home, that was what, uh, so they didn't miss supper, I guess? Well, bad news goes better with a full stomach, Andy. And a night's sleep, apparently. Yeah, and in the morning, she still delays mentioning her purpose until she's actually saying goodbye to Verman. Uh-huh. Which point yeah, she on finally, the way to the boat. Right, right. They finally, they are actually walking to the boat. And she says, oh, before I forget, have you heard about the slayings at Yolkosfever? The, uh, what, what slayings? You know, Thorger Haverson and Thorman Bersason. They slew Ingolf and his son Thorbrand. What? They go too far, those sworn brothers. I will not have them killing any more of our people. Uh, it was to be expected to react like this. Who else should punish crimes such as plundering and robbery if you, the chieftain of the district, choose to sit on your hands? What? Thorgir and Thormod have carried out a task you ought to have done yourself, and you'd see mm. that if you weren't blinded. Now, I- I've come here to purchase immunity for those responsible for the slayings. Not to compensate for the slain. They were worthless, and long since forfeited their lives. No, I came to show respect to you as is my duty. I want to give you 300 pieces of silver as a settlement. And she upends a huge bag and pours silver out into Verman's lap. Yeah. This is a master class in managing a weak chieftain. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's also another example of a wise woman giving mm-hmm. good counsel to a man who is not quite capable of managing things himself. Yeah. Yeah. Also, it's a uh, it's very good silver, and Vermund's eyes are popping out as the silver falls into his lap, and ultimately he uh, he agrees very readily to let the matter rest, uh-huh. but only if Thorgair leaves the district. Right, and that's an interesting note. Uh, rem- first of all, remember that Vermund is the one who banished Thorgair's father Havar from the district a couple of years earlier, but even before that, Havar was banished from a southern district over some killings. This is turning into a bad habit for this family. Yeah, we're reaching Eric the Red levels of being thrown out of civilized society with these guys. Hey, imitate the best, (laughs) even when it's at being the worst. Yeah. So Vermund sticks to this deal, and Mm -hmm. Thorgan and Thormar uh, are grateful to Sigurdfjöld for smoothing the whole thing over. Uh, The only real change from all of this is that Thormod's father, Bersi, has to move out of the district to Laugabal, since he still wants to be able to have the Sworn Brothers stay with him from time to time, so he can't be in the district. Right, and they spend the rest of that summer on their fishing expedition. Uh, But at the end of the season, they separate. Uh, Thormod intends to spend the winter with his father in Logabal, but Thorgir wants to spend some time with his cousins in Rekinus. You want to take bets about which one of them manages to find some trouble over the winter? (laughs) Part 5! Thorgir finds some trouble. John, you didn't give me a chance to guess. I wasn't going to be hard to figure out. Uh, So far, Thorgir's definitely the main engine driving this saga. Uh, Thormod's there to back him up and give him a place to stay, but when it comes to getting us from one action set piece to another, Thorgir's the one giving us value for money. Mm. Thormod's still there, though, and as we'll see in the next episode, he's going to have a few adventures all his own. Yeah, but so far with the Draupa and everything, he's he's playing a well-armed Boswell to Thorgir's Hack and Slash Johnson. Uh-huh. <laughs> okay, uh, so the saga now introduces two more men. Uh, the first is an antisocial farmer named Thorkel, who lives on his farm with his wife and three servants. 
He has a reputation for being both miserly and lily-livered. The second man is Butraldi, uh, who is a man of no fixed home. He hires himself out as a worker during summers, uh, wanders with two disreputable friends during the winter, staying with a succession of farmers for a few nights at a time. And Butraldi is, is large, but not especially tall. He's powerfully built. He's ugly. And he's got a quick temper and a nasty reputation. He's known to have killed quite a few men, and only the fact that he's a distant relative of Vermund the Slender has kept him from being run out of Iceland or killed by now. It's almost as if this saga has something to say about chieftains being corrupt. Uh huh. Yeah, and there's that link to Vermund specifically again. Yeah, it's clearly establishing Vermund as a link to a, a larger story of the saga age. I think. Sure, sure, but we'll, we'll get to it. Go on. So one winter evening. Butraldi uh, and his friends show up at Thorkel's door. It's a particularly cold night, and small snowfalls have been happening all day. They ask for shelter for the night, and they're not so much asking as putting their coats by the door and helping themselves to a seat by the fire, which is, you know. <laughs> uh, um, and Thorkel may be a miser, but he's also a coward, and so he has no choice but to welcome them and offer them something to drink. As they're chatting, there's another knock at the door. Yes, and this time it's Thorger, who's on his way south, and he's also looking for a place to wait out the weather. Yeah, that's uh, that's awkward. Uh, Thorkel sees Thorger and starts an absolute flop sweat. (laughs) He says, Betraldi and his friends are here already. I don't know how you feel about each other, but I expect he wishes you ill, since he's a friend of your enemy Vermin. But but look, I can't bear the sight of bloodshed. Surely we'll faint if you two start brawling in my home. <laughs> he's going to faint. Rest assured, farmer, my presence here will bring you no harm. You know, that's a lot to promise, actually. Uh, yeah. As a guest, I mean, Thorgir is essentially taking responsibility for making sure there is no violence under Thorgil's roof. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't know how much trouble Betraldi is likely to cause. Yeah, but, I mean, what else is he supposed to say? Tough noogies for you, old man? Stand aside while I bathe your home in blood? No. <laughs> no. I mean, this is Thorger we're talking about. We <laughs> no, haven't it's really cold plum- out. He needs, he needs somewhere yeah, to stay. No. But we haven't really plumbed the depths of his character just yet. Uh, but I would say uh, bathing a house in blood is totally within the bounds of something <laughs> he might say. Actually, yeah, that's fair. I withdraw my objection. Uh, and as you might imagine, the evening is more than a little awkward. Uh, Betraldi and Thorgir are both armed, and although neither of them rushes at the other swinging wildly, neither of them takes off their weapons either. Uh, Thorkel eventually brings out a bit of a meal. Uh, some mutton ribs and a large plate of old hard cheese. Mm-hmm. Uh, Betraldi takes the rib plate, Thorgir snags the cheese, and the two of them eat silently, not offering or asking for one another's food. Thorkel and his wife eat by a fire in a side room and occasionally peer around the wall to see what's going on in the main room. Yeah. But all they see is Betraldi gnawing tough meat and Thorgir hacking away at the hard old cheese. Yeah. This is a great scene and it's another funny scene because you you have this this animosity between these two characters. Yep. They both see themselves as hero types or aggressive warrior types. And they're both hunched over their individual plates, 
not sharing with each other. Uh, one, I think the the saga describes uh, Thorkel having a knife or and and just eating away Butroldi, uh, taking the rib plate and eating it as clean, eating the ribs as clean as he can. And mm-hmm. none of them is going to give the other anything right. that they right. have. No sharing. At one point, it also says that neither one of them also they both got food in their packs, but neither one of them takes out any other food because they're afraid it would be seen as a weakness in front of the other one. Yes, they, yes. They can't just make do with the food they've been given. Yeah, and, and you know it's not the best food, but it's nice that you know Thor, while Thorkel's frightened, he's not so frightened that he he you know keeps food from them. Uh, he's feeding them right. well. Right, right. I mean, you know, food ain't free, so he doesn't put out the good stuff, but he's mm-hmm. he's feeding them at least. And when everyone has quote unquote dined, Thorkel enters and clears his throat. In return for my hospitality. I ask that you show each other no aggression in my house. It would cause me great trouble if you started fighting here. I think it best that Thorgir rest with us in the other hall, while Betraldi and his companions sleep here in the main room. And everyone agrees that that's probably for the best. Yeah, and so far this isn't much of an action narrative. Um, I think you mentioned the Thorgir finding some trouble. And so far, the only trouble I foresee is maybe a bit of constipation from eating a dinner of very, very hard cheese. <laughs> well, give it a second. Um, <laughs> so, in the morning, Thorgir rejoins uh, Betroldi in the main room, and Thorkel serves breakfast. Andy, given that Thorkel is the sort of man to serve slightly past its prime mutton and nearly Neolithic cheese for dinner, what would you expect for breakfast? I assume he's uh, been saving the good stuff for breakfast. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe uh, an omelet, maybe a southwestern omelet, uh, mm, some nice, nice. muffins, mm. plenty of hot joe, and I don't great. need the dancer. Hmm? Uh, no, he brings out the same plates of slightly more elderly mutton and cheese. Ugh, yeah. And presumably the meat still has tooth marks from Boutraldi, and the rinds <laughs> are all piled up next to the remainder of the cheese. That would have to be the case. Um, this time, Thorger grabs the meat, and Betraldi gets to work on the cheese. Yeah. And once again, they carefully do not acknowledge one another at any point during the meal. Too busy trying not to lose a tooth on their breakfast, I think. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> uh, and as soon as it's fully light, uh, Betraldi and his friends head out on a path leading into a nearby valley. There's lots of snow drifts and hard, frozen, older snow, and the going is extremely tough. And meanwhile, Thorger heads out shortly after them, but he sees that the walking is going to be rather treacherous. So mm-hmm. he turns aside instead and makes an ascent to one overlook of the valley, passing Butraldi's crew without them seeing him. Mm-hmm. And then he sits there and waits for a while at the crest of the high road on the far end of the valley, waiting. And he he has a while to wait because Betraldi and his friends are really struggling to make it across the valley. Uh, when they get near the high road, Betraldi looks behind him and sees that no one is following. Mm-hmm. He says, So, the great hero ran off, did he? Thorger steps out onto the edge of the valley ridge just ahead of them. Hello there. <laughs> no, I didn't run. I simply took a different route so as not to have to cut my way through the snow. There'll be no running away from you now. I can guarantee that. And he simply continues to wait while Butraldi now starts climbing up the ridge face to get close to him. And here comes trouble. And when Butraldi is about halfway up the slope, Thorgair decides that he's tired of waiting. And so he drops his spear onto the packed snow with the head pointing downhill 
and then he unstraps his axe, steps onto the spear like a like, like a ski or a skateboard mm-hmm. or a surfboard, and the slope is steep. And in a couple of seconds, Thorgir is flying along, carving powder as he aims straight for his target. Right. Uh, now, Betraldi is focused on climbing, but he hears the whooshing sound of Thorgir shooting down the slope. Uh, he looks up just in time for Thorgir to blast his axe through Betraldi's chest, killing him instantly and knocking him back down the slope. <laughs> yeah. Thorgir then continues to rocket down to the bottom of the valley where Butroldi's friends scatter to avoid this man skiing down the slope on one spear. <laughs> He's on missile. one spear! <laughs> uh, they, they want no part of Thorgir, obviously. Uh, why would you? Uh, so instead yeah. they, they rush over to Butroldi's body and fuss over it until Thorgir turns and walks out of the valley. So what, what would we call this? Uh, spearboarding? Snow javelin? What are we calling this? Uh, I don't know. I mean, whatever it is, it's it's fantastic. It's right up there with Scarpathen skating across the ice to kill Thrain Sigfusson in Yal Saga. This is fantastic yeah. stuff. I mean, on a spear shaft. Mm-hmm. Right? He's essentially, as you said, sliding down the slope on one ski. Yeah, I, I think that's the idea. Yeah, or or something like it. And if you if you look at our show notes and our social media, we'll be posting one of the uh, uh, illustrations that Jacob Faust did for us. Um, it's mm. our feature for this uh, this episode, <laughs> and it, it is this this particular moment, and it's a great picture. Um, I think you guys are going to enjoy it. So check that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, Thorger continues on his trip south, and he makes it to Rekiholer without killing anyone else. So that's oh, it's a minor miracle. Yeah. And the rest of the winter is quiet. Right, for both men. Uh, we're not told what Thormod gets up to, but when spring rolls around, he and Thorger meet back at their ship on the outskirts of Isafjord and prepare for another summer's work. Mm-hmm. Part 6. Two roads diverge. In a snowy wood? Exactly. Andy, there's a bit of an incident uh, the summer that they get back together on their ship that I think we can handle fairly quickly. Is this the uh, the whale heist? Yeah. Um, we can't go past it too quickly if you're going to call it the whale heist, though. You're kind of no. you're writing a check there that we have to cash. Well, I think we need to. Uh, so, yeah, let's get into it. Thorger and Thormod return to the fishing grounds off Strander, uh, but they're having no luck. They can't find any whales and not much of anything else either. Uh-huh. But then they get wind of another ship that's had better fortune. There's a beached whale... That's been found and claimed by Thorgils Marson. Right, and Thorgils is another new character for us. Uh, he's a man from a prominent family. His father, Mar, is a cousin of Osmund Greylocks, the father of Greta Asmunderson. Mm-hmm. And Thorgils is also related to Thorsten Kugeson. Now, I, I, Gretir and Thorsten, they're both thingmen of yours, I believe. Uh, you believe correctly. Mm-hmm. Any chance you're going to be looking to complete the family hat trick by choosing Thorgils? Hmm? Uh, why don't we see if he makes it out of this chapter alive before we start anointing him? Uh, <laughs> Thorgils is a big, strong man. He's a good farmer. He's an all-around likable man with great skill in fighting. Uh, and when Thorger and Thormod's ship beaches next to where Thorgils and his men are butchering the whale, he turns and greets them. Yeah, and Thorgils wastes no time on socializing. Mm-hmm. You've, uh... Cut quite a lot from that whale. It'd be best now to uh, allow others a chance at it while there's still something worth taking. After all, we're all equally entitled here. 
That's a dubious claim at best. Uh, Thorgir, <laughs> I think Thorgir is referring here to the laws governing salvage and flotsam rights. Right? Since neither of these men owns the beach the whale rests on, he's saying neither of them has a superior claim to the whale. But he's leaping right past the more obvious I was here first argument that yeah. Thorgils can clearly make. So we are ignoring the complexity of land use law in favor of finder's keeper's logic. I think that's I mean, it's, look, it's better than what Thorgils got. Uh, <laughs> but Thorgils responds with a smile. Well said. Then let each of us keep what he's already cut. Wow, I didn't know George Takei was going to be showing up. George Takei? No, no. This is Dave Foley. <laughs> oh, it's a ver- I can see that. It's a version of a Dave Foley voice. Okay. Uh, you've cut quite a lot of meat already, and you may keep what you've cut. But either you leave the rest of the whale for us, or you divide equally with us what's been already cut and what remains. Well, I'm not inclined to leave the carcass, nor do I plan to give you the meat I've already taken from it. Not that we've still got the whale. Then you're going to have to see how long you can hold us off from it. Well, that seems like a good solution. This guy's way too cheerful for the situation. Look, they can't all be gravel-voiced and sullen, Andy. There are happy Vikings occasionally. Even when they're trying to protect their kills? I mean... Or their finds? You know, he's cheerful about the situation. He's going to have a chance to prove himself as a warrior. Sure, sure. So both sides lined up for a fight. Uh, Thorgir calls out to Thorgils. It's best that you and I fight only each other, since you're a seasoned and experienced fighter and... Well, I'd like to see how I fare against a guy like you. Let everyone else stay out of our fight, okay? I fully approve of that. Uh Uh-huh. So both sides charge in. There's a full battle. Both crews, they're about ten men. And the fighting is evenly matched. Thorgar and Thorgil stand in the middle of this fight, exchanging blows, and it's clear they are a good match for each other Mm -hmm. in skill. But Thorgar proves the more vicious fighter. And he overpowers Thorgils after a few minutes' combat. Oh, well, fair enough then. No hard feelings. Ah. So he's not going to survive the chapter. Uh, no, no, but that's a bit of a problem for Thorgir in the long run, you see. Yeah. yeah, you know, three of Thorgil's men are also killed, uh, but so are three of Thorgir and Thormont's. And although they do get all of the meat uh, from the whale, the Sworn Brothers are now officially seen as trouble. Here, but anyway. You can, yeah, you can see why. Thorgil's behavior is getting progressively harder to defend. Yeah. And Thorgil's was entirely within his rights and was a popular and well-connected man. And in fact, he was well-connected enough that t- this turns out to be the final straw. Osman Greylocks and Thorsten Kugason take up the suit over Thorgil's slaying, and they win a judgment of outlawry against Thorgil. Mm-hmm. So we have another outlaw hero. Yes, in we do. Our, well, well heroes. We have an outlaw. Hero. <laughs> we have another outlaw. Um, yes. and he, yeah, and he's a full outlaw, which means that people can kill him if they find him anywhere in Iceland. Well, they can try. Uh, mm-hmm. Thorger is turning out to be pretty hard to kill. Uh, and in fact, the Sworn Brothers spend the rest of the summer at Strandir as though nothing's changed. And as the saga tells us, all the men were frightened of them. And they prevailed over all things like weeds overtaking a field. Mm-hmm. Even the narrative is starting to frame them more negatively. 
Right? Their presence is a blight on the landscape now. Yeah. And, you know, as I got to this point, I started thinking that opening with Grettir is po- very pointed, right? Mm-hmm. It's establishing a mood and a mindset for the audience. Yes. You know? Um, and things are about to get a little bit worse for Thorgir because mm-hmm. at some point his behavior even becomes too much for his sworn brother, Thormod. Because one day, Thorgir asks him, Do you know of any other two men as eager as we, or as brave, or who have prevailed in tests of honor as often as we have? Well, such men, men no lesser than us, could be found if looked for. Hmm. But which of us do you think would prevail if we fought each other? I don't know. But I know that this question of yours will divide us in our companionship. We cannot stay together now. But I I wasn't speaking my mind, you know. I just... I wasn't saying I wanted us to fight each other. It came into your mind as you spoke it. And we shall go our separate ways. What? And they do. Uh, Thorgir keeps the ship, while Thormod takes the lion's share of their cargo and heads home to his father's farm at Lagabal. Meanwhile, Thorgir remains in Strongir, where he continues tormenting the locals until the onset of winter. And then he travels to his cousin Thorgils in Rekjahalur. Yeah. And that's that. The dream team is no more. Did not last as long as we were expecting. No, no, it no, it did not. And uh, but they're not totally done. They they are going to meet again, John. Mm-hmm. But uh, their time as a duo, it's over. It feels like they kind of wasted a lot of that time. I mean, I don't know. We got a couple witticism candidates, at least one amazing bloodshed contender. Mm-hmm. Maybe a nickname or two. So, okay, you know. do I need to remind you once again that the saga author isn't actually competing for our prizes? Well, John, he is now. Mm-hmm. He is now. Let's talk about this moment when the Brotherhood fractures. It's it's fascinating psychologically. Sure, yeah, we could do that. But let's not take too long because we've got a couple rune sticks that I want to get to. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, you know how we talked about the complex characterizations in Greta's saga, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is building on that same approach to saga writing. I agree. I absolutely agree. Uh, that's 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 not possible in the textual transmission sense, of course. Mm-hmm. Even if we accept the later dating for the composition of False Brother Saga, I don't think anyone has suggested a composition date after 1300. Right. Um, it's usually the decades before, so 1270 mm-hmm. to 1300. And that would still be decades before the traditional composition date for Gretsch's Saga. Yeah, but only if we stick to the idea of a strictly literary transmission. Sure. I, I, yeah. I know that's been the general attitude for, toward False Brother, right? That, uh, that uh, it's a literary text. But clearly it's working from both literary and oral traditions. Mm-hmm. And, and well, especially way, with the claim on the poetry, right? Absolutely. Uh, and the way it thinks about its protagonists has a lot in common with the way Gretter's saga treats its subjects. Yeah, I'm not sure you can wave a wand and invent an oral transmission, but we can take it as a hypothesis, and I think it's appropriate to. Mm-hmm. More importantly, John, why are we only bringing this up now? This is kind of important information, the kind of thing that we would usually discuss at the beginning of the episode. I mean, we're bringing um, it up now because this is when Thorger and Thormod's characterizations diverge sharply for the first time. It's I, yeah, oh, hang, we on, hang on, hang we have, on. We have a time Denorian. We have all the time we need. Just uh-huh. a second. Um... What am I? What am I waiting for exactly, John? Uh. 
John? Okay, I'm back. Uh, So remember when I showed up at the beginning of the podcast and talked about Gretter as an 11th century tragicomic warrior type? Uh, uh, Yeah. Well, it's it's all coming back to me now. I remember I remember hating you so much. (laughs) Yes. Okay. I feel the hatred. It it fixes it in your mind. Uh, Uh. So we can look at Thormod and Thorgir as both having aspects of that same type. Mm hmm. They're unpopular, mainly because their way of performing masculinity is several degrees off from the societal ideal. Well, also, Thorgir keeps killing people. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, even the killing is a little off, especially as the story goes. Violence is part of the masculinity celebrated in the sagas, but that violence has to be channeled or restrained by the dictates of honor. And I'm not sure Thorgir yeah, fits yeah. the bill. Right. Now, Thorgir is increasingly unrestrained in his violence. And the first real crossroads is when he questions Thormod about their chances against each other. In his thoughts, at least, Thorgir is now turning violence inward toward his brother rather than outward. And the result is Thorgir's increasing isolation, uh, which is, of course, a theme of Gretter's saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's also creating a divide between the more antisocial and borderline anarchic side of Gretter, represented by Thorgir, and the other aspects of his personality, represented by Thormod. We'll see a bit more of that side later in the saga, but more broadly, the nuanced psychology of Gretter's saga is at work in this saga as well. That last exchange between the friends is really telling. After he asks about a fight between the brothers, Thorgir, what does Thorgir say again? What is it again? He says, I wasn't speaking my mind or saying I wanted us to fight each other. Right, right. And and Thormod replies, it came into your mind as you spoke it. Yeah, that's a great line. Right, it's a fine distinction, but an important one. Right, for Thorgir, if he didn't do it, it doesn't count. His actions are his psychology. But Thormod understands the unspoken motivation behind the words, even if Thorgir doesn't know it himself. That question is an indicator of something in Thorgir's mind. Thormod can still love Thorgir as a brother and trust in his intentions, but there's no way Thormod can ever trust Thorgir's thoughts again. That's a distinction that a lot of sagas wouldn't make. Definitely not. But it's a hallmark of Gretter's saga to delve into the psychology of characters like Onan Treleg or Gretter himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's even an echo of that psychology in the verse attributed to Thormod in this chapter. Uh, do you want to? You, you got the chapter right. Do you want to read this one? Uh, sure, I can. People have heard. We had many slanderers who tried to come between us, but I enjoyed advice from the wound snake's reddener. Though men's hatred I have felt, I will remember nothing but good between me and him, the steerer of wave beasts. And you notice he's still trying to sell the idea that Thorgir is a competent sea captain. I do. I, I really like that that verse, though. And I think, you know, maybe at your funeral, this is one of the verses that I'll read um, <laughs> to describe our relationship. <laughs> now, if we're looking for connections and parallels between the two sagas, they're not hard to find. Uh, we've yeah. already had a brawl over a whale carcass, just like we did in Gretchen Saga. Uh, and this one features the nephew of Thorgir Battleback, the star mm-hmm. of the Gretchen version. And there are a substantial number of figures who appear in both stories. And again, like I said earlier, 
the fact that it begins with a nod towards Gretzer's saga and a question about Gretzer's behavior and yeah. the meaning of justice, um, the choice that Gretzer makes to leave and not harm anyone, all of that stuff, mm-hmm. all of that is significant to what I think this author is playing at. But we've got a long yeah. way to go before we can unpack all of that. But it speaks to a certain kind of saga storytelling, right? Yeah. That is that is deeply concerned with those internal states of being. Mm-hmm. Right? The the idea that we often think about the sagas as being kind of uh, at one remove, right? That you're kind of forced to infer the uh, the morality and the thought process of the characters based on their actions. That is something that this saga and Greta's saga both. Uh, aren't necessarily going to just sort of leave as the complete story. They are more in, interested in engaging with that side of their characters. Definitely, yeah. Uh, incidentally, this is an argument that's been made before. Uh, when I started looking around, I found a trail of discussions about Greta and the Sworn Brothers. Uh, in fact, uh, Jonas Christensen makes almost exactly this argument in Edison and Sagas. There you go. So everyone can read it there. Um, okay, uh, is this where we wrap up for now? I, I want to keep talking about it. I really, really do. Uh, but we've got I, I think, many episodes yeah, I think we can so. play with it. Right, exactly. Now, that we, this is going to come up again, right? Uh, as we see the sort of diverging uh, psychology between these two figures. I think yeah. the next episode or two is going to be really sort of uh, fertile for that. Um, we can pick up at this point in the saga next time anyway, because we have to start dealing with the fact that there are multiple versions of Thorgir and Thormod's breakup. Because next time, We'll be entering the nightmare-fueled world of manuscript studies. Uh, night nightmare-fueled? Nah, it's actually pretty interesting. I just like the thunderclaps. I see, I see. All right, uh, so uh, I think we should. Uh, it's been a long time since we did a full uh, saga episode. I think we should dip into the rune sack. Maybe answer a question or share yeah. some listener observations. Yeah, actually, yeah, I was thinking we could adjourn to the side bag off the usual listener rune sack to read some listener comments. I, I think that's a great idea. There's been a lot of good ones, and I've been saving them for so long. It's time. Yeah. Uh, not everyone who writes to us is asking a question. We get comments, critiques, and helpful information as well. So we're just going to go through a couple of those. Lots of helpful information, actually. Absolutely. Oh, I, I learned gosh. so much reading listener comments. Yep. Thank you all, by the way, all of you who write in. We, we, we really enjoy it. Uh, I'm going to start us off. Here's a note from Stefan Bjornsson. Hey there, Stefan. Stefan actually has a few things I think we should include. So I'm going to read a couple of them here and maybe the rest in our next episode. Okay. Uh, Stefan's currently up to our episodes on Njal's saga. And he says he's enjoying them. So, you know, we'll take him on his word. All right. Uh, but he wants to share a couple of things. Uh-huh. Yes. This is a good one. I know this one. I uh, bet you do. Uh, Stefan is thinking over our choices for outlawry for Njal's saga. Uh-huh. Uh, do you recall how that shook out? Well, I think one of us chose Mord the Gothi, and one of us chose Holgarth Longlegs. Uh-huh. Technically, that is correct. Uh, Stefan writes, The name Morther was so hated in Iceland that not a single person was named Morther from the 14th century until the 20th century. This is common knowledge in Iceland. Mm. Morther was so hated that his name became a curse word. The word Lyrke, or lying, was put in front of his name. Lugemorther, lying morth. It's even more negative than a liar. It has the same meaning as a lying weasel in the Icelandic dictionary. So the nation of Iceland has spoken, and it agrees with John in kicking morth out of Iceland. Mm-hmm. 
as it happens, Hrapr, uh, Killer Hrapr, right, got a similar response from the Icelandic people. The name mostly died out until the 20th century. And the word Svika was put in front of his name and became Svikarapr. It has the meaning of a very fraudulent person in the Icelandic dictionary. Holgerth did not get this treatment from the Icelandic people, which disagrees with Andy. She should not have been kicked out of Iceland. Uh-huh, yeah. Holgerth is still a fairly common name and has been consistently popular in every century. Stefan, thank you so much for your comments. Now I see why you picked it. <laughs> You son of a bitch. Yeah, uh, Stefan, thank you. Thank, thanks a bunch for all of that. Um, first of all, I, you know, the commentary on Mordor and Hrapper, that's really, really great. Um, stuff Isn't we, that cool? Yeah, it's it's really cool stuff that John and I couldn't possibly know uh, because we don't live in Iceland. We're not part of the culture there. Um, so I love those little tidbits of information that shed some light on the kind of the echoes of the saga through time. Uh, that's great. Now, uh, more importantly, however, um, Halgarth, uh, Hogarth Longlegs, um, just because the name doesn't die out doesn't really mean that people don't like her or that she's not uh, a bad character. I think she earned her uh, dismissal and her outlawry. Thank you very much. I'll stand by uh, my decision. Hogarth was the worst. But if you like I her, mean, if you know, like her Andy. so much, uh, Stefan, why don't you marry her? Hmm? <laughs> I mean, several hundred years worth of Icelanders seem to be on my side and Stefan's side on this one. Maybe we'll put it to a vote. Sure, sure. Uh, <laughs> moving on, we have a submission from uh, Laurus, uh, and you've got to hear this one, John. It's great. All right, hit me. Dear Andy and John, I thank you for the podcast. Unfortunately, I have reached to the point last week that I am now in line with your current postings, and therefore I have to wait until your next episode. Sorry, Laurus. Uh, but hey, summer's here. So hopefully we'll be showing up in your downloads a bit more regularly for a while. But in reality, Laurus, if you've all caught up, you'll know that uh, that's not true. <laughs> but there's more. That's not actually the part that I, I thought you should hear. Um, this is right. this is a little bit lengthy, so uh, just uh, you know, buckle in. Um, it's it's quite interesting, though. You're gonna like this. He writes, since I listened to your episodes about Finnboga Saga, I remembered when you commented on his superhero-like strength several times. One particular comment stood out when his when his ship wrecked on the coast of Norway and he had to swim in the ice-cold sea to the coast, then climb some cliffs and walk to a nearby farm for his rescue. Now, as unbelievable as this sounds, it actually happened in reality not so long ago. And he huh. sent us a link to an article about an incident when a fishing boat capsized on March 11th in 1984, about five to six kilometers from the shores of, of Heime in the Vestman Islands. And he writes, this was in the middle of the night when temperatures were just around freezing. So the ocean was maybe five to eight degrees Celsius. And the winds were fortunately calm, but the waves in the area were always big. This fisherman, whose name was Gunlager, uh, was able to swim to the coast. But where he came to the coast first, he estimated that the landing was too dangerous. So he swam out again and followed the coastline <laughs> down to a more favorable landing site. But the coast there was still nothing but steep cliffs, which he would then have to climb. Very dangerous. Mm. So he continues, bear in mind, these cliffs belong to the new lava from the 1973 eruption, which is kind of cool as well. (laughs) Now, while swimming, he had to kick off his boots. So when he reached the top of the fresh lava, he had to cross the lava barefoot. No Mm. lead boots here. And uh, he writes, as you know, after seeing a lava in Iceland, it's like walking on chunks of broken glass. That's absolutely right. That's why you need lead boots. We know that. It's brutal. 
<laughs> right. Now, on the path that he chose, there was fortunately a bathtub full of water for watering horses. But the what? water in the bathtub was frozen, so he had to break the ice to reach a fre- the, the fresh water that he needed to drink after this uh, crazy, crazy effort. Mm-hmm. Then he managed to walk into town barefoot still. Uh, he knocked on the door of the first house that he reached, and there he was saved. He writes, I doubt that Finboy's achievement matches Gunlager's superhuman success. Uh, very, very cool story. Thank Good you Lord. for sharing that, Lauris. Boy, ending up with a calling out of Finboy as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, in, uh, Andy, in a, in a related story, interestingly, uh, I couldn't find my slippers last night. And I, I had to walk around for several hours without them. Oh, you're such a brave man, John. Good for you. Well, Your wife must I, I don't be like so to, proud of you. I don't like you. to use the word hero, but you know. That's really nice. Uh, so, Lauris, uh, he did send a couple of links to this story, which, if anything, he's understating. Uh, we'll put that up on the website, and you, too, can enjoy Gunlaug's exploits for yourself. It's great. Amazing. Yeah. Um, yeah, you just can keep so going. So, got, that's got to do it for tonight. Um, we, we'll be back soon with the next installment of False Brother Saga. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in the meantime, let us know what you think of the story so far. What did we get wrong? What did we get right? Are you Team Thorgair or Team Thormod? And why would you want to be on either yeah. team? Yeah. Can I be Team They're Both Dangerous and No Thank You? Uh, you can be whatever you want to be because the good Lord oh. gave you the ability <laughs> to choose for yourself, John. Oh, boy. How inspiring. Yes. Uh, so how do people reach us if they have burning questions about the sagas? Well, you can find us on Facebook, where we are Saga Thing Podcast, or on Twitter, at Saga Thing Pod. You can also reach us at our email address, sagathingpodcast at gmail.com, or maybe look for us on Instagram, where we are Saga Thing Podcast. Or you can compose a Draupa re- recounting our exploits and recite it to anyone who will listen. It probably won't get to us directly, but hey, there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? That's right. Um, and again, thank you to Jacob Faust for the original illustrations of this very cool story. There's two of them that he did for this episode. Uh, so you can see them in the show notes or check our social media. You can also visit his uh, website on uh, Instagram where he is at Scarpathan underscore illustrator. And you can get a link to his Etsy page there as well. Good stuff. All right. Uh, good night, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye for now. Someone's knocking at the door. Hey, John, you, uh, I, I feel like you missed an opportunity with uh, Section 3 there. You could have called it uh, <laughs> Knock, Knock, Knocking on Yoder's Door. You know? <laughs> right? That's it, pretty good. Uh, that's pretty good. Uh, I actually, I spent so long, I didn't even think of that because I was spending so long trying to work out a Knock, Knock joke I could do uh, <laughs> to start this one. And I, I, I kept trying to shoehorn it in there. I just couldn't make it work. I, well, I mean, I, I could think of one. What about? Right. Uh, hey, we'll, we'll try this. Uh, knock, knock. Who's there? Thorger. Thorger, who? Oh, uh, Thorger uh, Haverson. <laughs> remember, <laughs> you killed my dad. Uh, let me see. Uh, That's pretty good. Yeah, knock, knock. Uh, who's there? Vigfus. Vigfus, who? Nah, it's Thorger. 
Thorgeir who? 